go ahead and get started here. We'll let anyone else who wants to join us along the way. So thank you everyone for coming out on a summer night and joining us for this conversation. My name is Abby Ross. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for United Spinal Association. We're really happy to have you here with us uh, for this conversation and we hope it's going to be the first of actually many conversations about important issues that impact our members and uh, the ways that we can talk about it together and learn together, give it space together, um, grow and, and really support one another. So it's very exciting that we're having this tonight. It's a new format for us. So uh, thanks again for joining us. We um, are starting tonight with a discussion about race and disability and Black Lives Matter. I hope that most of you, if not all of you, had a chance to read um, the August issue of New Mobility. Our staff did a, a really wonderful job putting together a compilation of stories and lived experiences um, with the help of Alex Jackson and, and, other, and other folks. So we just wanted to continue that conversation here. Um, and we have some wonderful folks tonight that are gonna help us with that conversation. And uh, we're looking forward to learning and growing together tonight. Um, I do wanna take a moment here and, and introduce Carmen Jones, who is a real treasure for our organization. Um, Carmen is our vice chair of our board of directors. She's been on the board of directors, I think for 10 years, Carmen, maybe. And then uh, the National Spinal Cord Injury Association, maybe 10 years before that. Uh, so it's a lot of years of investment in our community, in our organization, um, a lot of resources and you know, energy and creativity and you know, all kinds of wonderful things that we're very, very grateful for. So we're also grateful that you're gonna be leading us and navigating us through this conversation tonight. And uh, we do hope that, you know, that we come away um, learning more and understanding lived experiences and seeing how we can support one another uh, in, in a bigger way. So Carmen, uh, go ahead and take it away from there. Thank you so much, Abby. Hello, everyone. I am really excited to be with you all. I know the other um, panelists are as well. I wanna applaud um, United Spinal and also New Mobility for even tackling this issue because oftentimes in our community, in the disability community, um, we may skirt around or circumvent issues of race. And so um, I commend uh, Jim Weissman's leadership and Abby for wanting to put this together. Um, I, I guess I would deem this as a courageous conversation. That's a word I'm hearing shared a lot in corporate America. And it really is not always the easiest thing to talk about race, but I do believe, and I think um, the panelists would agree as well, that we begin to do better when we know better. Maya Angelou said that. And so in having just conversations that may typically be uncomfortable for folks, we learn and we grow. So this is our um, first effort to really try to tackle a topic and you know the culture and all the social issues of the day um, really have sparked our discussion um, with the latest um, shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I heard today on the news that he now has a spinal cord injury. Um, you know, it's, it's a relevant time. There's no opportunity for people of color to really rest and relax because, you know, we're, we're often um, victims in, in, in an unarmed way. And so um, I want to just get us kicked off. And I'm going to ask each of the panelists, we have James Ainsworth, Stefan Henry, and Andrea Levant here. And I would love for them to introduce themselves. Um, they can share um, where they're from, and then, you know, a little bit about their disability. So you all know that we 
um, you know, where we come from and what we have in common. So let me turn it over to Stefan. Uh, hi, my name is Stefan Henry. I live in New York. I'm a C5, C6 quadriplegic. Um, I'm actually CEO of a company called Love of the Curve, and I'm very happy to be here today. Thank you so much. Andrea? Hi, everybody. Happy to be here today, Arizona, outside of Phoenix. And um, I have a strategy and communications firm that focuses on um, disability. And let's see, I'm also currently serving as the impact producer for Crip Camp, um, Netflix film executive produced by President Barack Obama. Excited to be here. Thank you, Andrea. Um, some, I'm hearing some background noise. So for those folks that are participating, if you could put your phone on mute, that would be great. All right. And then Mr. Ainsworth. Hello, my name is James Ainsworth. Um, I'm a T12 paraplegic. I'm a copywriter and a journalist. Great. All right, so we, I have a series of questions. This will be real informal. We're gonna ask that you keep your questions till the end, um, and then we'll be happy to answer them. So this is to the, all of the participants. Can you share a time when you were discriminated against? Open the floor. Stefan, I saw you unmute. <laughs> so I don't know which one. I guess the more powerful one is um, I was once in a relationship with a South Asian girl, um, but I could never meet her family. Um, mostly because I'm a black man and because I wasn't white or brown. Um, if they met me and they found out that we were in a relationship together, she would get disowned from her family, not even because of my disability, but because of the color of my skin. Um, so that, that was a pretty big eye opener for uh, even, even in like the realm of things that you can kind of be discriminated for. You sort of think that maybe my disability would take a little bit more of a lead in that, but still being black is more prominent. So, so. Thank you. James? Uh, sure. Um, I wrote about this in my uh, article on new mobility. Um, about 17 years ago, I went to visit a friend in Five Points, Denver, uh, Denver's urban inner city neighborhood. And uh, I, uh, I drove a, a Dodge Avenger at the time, and uh, it was really quite cumbersome to transfer in and out. I had to take the wheelchair apart and pull it across me and put it into uh, the, um, the passenger seat and then transfer, then take it out, put it back together and transfer into it and, and get on my way. So I went to visit this friend at his apartment and um, I, uh, there was no parking on the street. Uh, and uh, I had chronic pain, so I didn't want to park two or three blocks away and try to um, wheel myself over to the uh, apartment. I just wanted to see if the, my friend was home and then I'd work out the 
the parking later. So I pulled up on uh, the grass next to the apartment complex and um, I went in and, you know, went to the guy's place. He wasn't there. But when I got back to my car, there was a motorcycle cop there and he was hassling me about parking. And I tried to explain to him, hey, you know, I've got a spinal cord injury. I'm, you know, I have chronic pain. There's no parking on the block here. Uh, I don't want to park three blocks away and then try to wheel. And then he sneered at me and he said, are you talking back to me? And it was a definite message in that sneer. It was, man, you say one more wrong thing and you're going to jail. And uh, having a spinal cord injury, um, I, at that, I didn't have much stomach for confrontation at that point because I didn't want to end up in jail, not have catheters, uh, not be able to take care of myself, uh, possibly have my car impounded. Um, and uh, it's normally I have, very little problems with police. I, you know, I normally get along, uh, get along with everybody. Uh, I'm just not a confrontational kind of person. But um, this particular event was, you know, it was it was really bold with, you know, his hatred, and um, there was really uh, not much I could do with it. So I just, uh, I just was quiet, and I just got in my car and, and I left. Um, but what I said in my article um, is that uh, for a black person, you can be fine with seven or eight or nine out of 10 interactions with police that are, are decent, respectful, and courteous. But that, that one bad apple out of 10, uh, that one wrong encounter could, could be dangerous, harmful. It could cost you your life. Um, we see now Jacob Blake has a spinal cord injury. Um, we're lucky, supposedly, that he, he got shot seven times. I mean, we're lucky he's alive. Um, and so for my white friends, I, you know, I try to use that as an example for them to understand why there's a need for systemic reform. And we need certain protections out there. Um, and uh, I think it's similar to what is needed in terms of societal reforms for dealing with, uh, with the disabled, with disability, the disability community. So, so that's my experience. Okay, thank you so much. Ms. Andrea? Yeah, so my um, story that I often tell is a little bit different um, and it speaks to the employment side. Um, and so the first job that I, um, basically that, that was gonna be the job to move me to Washington DC from Nashville, um, I it was a job that I applied for online and um, had interviewed for, you know, and it was clear that they planned to interview over the phone. 
Um, and you know, we're cool with that. And I did a first interview, went really well, was invited for a second interview and perhaps a third. And I, I remember on the last interview, the people said, the person that was interviewing said, we have to make a decision pretty quick because I am leaving to go out of town. Um, and so we want to, to, um, so we'll, you know, be back to you very quickly. And at this point, um, I hadn't disclosed my disability. I think that a lot of us have that, you know, kind of experience of trying to decide when and how and all of those things. And this was admittedly 12, 13 years ago, um, or more even, yeah, 13 years ago. Um, and I had a very different stance on disability. Now, I, I would, people would know it up front, but um, I was nervous about it. And so I hadn't said anything um, about uh, being disabled. And then after my last interview, I was kind of, what I'll say, convicted um, and, and felt like, you know what, if I am letting them know about who I am as a person to uh, not tell them about my disability feels like I'm a denying an aspect of my, of myself. Um, and if they want me and the qualities that I exhibit, I would say that many of those are related to, you know, my experience as a disabled person. So I actually called them back and said, um, you know, uh, just wanted to let you know, and kind of said the same, same thing. I, um, I'm a wheelchair user. I happen to be, I was in the car at the time. I'm like, I'm driving right now. I'm, you know, independent. Not that those things really matter um, when I look back, but just kind of trying to explain that that doesn't, um, you know, hinder my ability to do the job. But if you want me, I want you to know this aspect of who I am. And so I don't even know if it was 24 hours later, but I basically got an email saying, wait a second, we've decided that um, we're going to hold off on making the decision um, and, you know, uh, first of all, what is it that it would take for you to, you know, they started asking, oh, well, our, our, our um, accessible bathroom is on a different floor and I don't know if that would work and, you know, kind of try to start coming up with excuses. And then um, they said, well, we're going to um, wait till the person gets back from vacation and kind of see whether you can, um, let's bring you up to DC uh, and, and chat some more. And I was really frustrated because I'm like, you weren't going to bring me up to DC. Uh, you, weren't, you weren't worried in essence about, well, you know, you couldn't trust that I, I know myself and, and my needs. And, and so you want to kind of check me out before you you know, make a decision. And so I had to wait a few more weeks, flew up to DC, met with them, literally within hours, got a call saying that, um, saying that I got the job. Interestingly, I took the job. It was a job that took me to DC, but um, I always, you know, I knew that had it not been, like it was very distinct and that had it not been that I had disclosed my disability, that the process would have looked different. Um, and some could say, you know, well, you know, they just wanted to be sure, but there was, there's a tone, right? That we can kind of tell in an experience when you're more concerned or you're fearful, or you don't really know what implications and kind of how much is this gonna cost. And I felt like as soon as they saw that I was 
quote unquote, whatever normal is, um, that that made their decision for them. And so um, bittersweet experience, but it speaks in my world to kind of the, the, the pieces around discrimination and employment. Okay. I guess for my part, I'll just offer two things. Um, one, my first racial incident, I remember, um, and I didn't just share this in the beginning. I've been a wheelchair user for almost 34 years as a result of a car accident when I was in college. So, you know, I grew up on, you know, able-bodied up until 20. And so, or non-disabled, I should say. Um, and my very first incident was in 1976 when my family moved into a neighborhood and I was in the third grade and we were the first black family to desegregate the subdivision and the neighbors sent around a petition for us to not move in. And so that left such a thing um, because I'd never, you know, I was nine, 10 years old and I'd never heard the N word. I was told things like Stefan, you know, we can be friends at school or we can be friends, but we, you can't come home um, to my family and meet my family. So that was, that was painful. Um, and then my second experience was when I was in college and I was navigating being, trying to find a job. And um, I went to the interview, they, I, they did not know I was a wheelchair user before, there was no reason for them to know. And the woman was, the recruiter was very uncomfortable and she started scouring my resume, asking typical, your strengths, your weaknesses, those typical questions. And then got towards the end and said, can you move your feet? <laughs> can, what, is, what is your prognosis? And knowing what I know now, I would have uh, sued that company. But, you know, at that point, I was just trying to get a job. So I was going along to get along. So, um, you know, it can be very subtle. And, and if you don't have the confidence, uh, those encounters can leave you very... Um, deflated and, uh, you know, zap, zap a lot of your will. All right, let's move along. I think we could spend the rest of the night talking about this. Um, Let me, I'd just like to add one quick thing, in sure. if I may. Sure. Just a quick comment. Uh, uh, sometimes when my van isn't functioning, I, I catch Uber. And uh, I, you know, I'll my grocery shopping with Uber. And the the, some Uber drivers will see that I'm in a wheelchair and I've got these bags in my lap and they'll just take off. But I'll catch the next Uber driver. So, um, but uh, I just wanted to add, you know, since we're talking about both the black and the disabled, I wanted to add that. I've had that happen too, Mr. Ainsworth. I've had that happen too. And, and when the driver does come up to get me, I say, that other guy missed out. I tip really well. <laughs> All right. So second question. <laughs> yeah. Describe how you navigate the intersection of being black and having a disability. I don't know how to, I don't know exactly how to answer that. Okay. You're, you're, you're really just operating as a double minority, right? So like being black, sometimes you can feel invisible. If that makes sense, like you can be sort of you're either too visible or not visible at all, right? Like you're, you're either like everyone's friend and everyone loves you and like, hey, you're like the cool guy in the room or like your opinion doesn't matter. 
And I feel like disability kind of plays out the same way where you're like, you're like, you're extra special because you're the only one that's different in the room. But simultaneously, sometimes they just push you off in a corner because they don't know how to like take on your experience mm -hmm. at all. So I, I just operate in the thought of like, if I have a thought or something that I have to express and it has to be expressed. Me personally, I kind of consider myself a bit of a chameleon where I can kind of go into the room and be like, okay, I know how these people th think. I know how these people talk. I will code switch, right? Like I will. And you define code switching? I know what it means to me, but I don't know the literal definition, but you know, I'll literally speak their language as opposed to how I would normally speak at home or normally speak with my friends. Like if I have to go into a room full of CEOs who are only speaking in terms of like accounting and numbers, then I speak, I switch my speak to only talking with accounting and numbers. If I'm with my boys on the street, I'll be like, hey, yo, what's up? All these, like all the slang and everything that you normally use that you can say the same things with, but only in one way will the people in the, in the lecture room understand you. Sure, sure. Thank you for that. Andrea, what about you? How do you navigate your intersectionality of being Black and disabled? Well, um, I mean, it's interesting right now in the current climate, I think, versus, you know, um, prior to. And, and I think that there's always a sense of other, and you're always trying to figure out I'm kind of constantly trying to figure out based on the space that I'm in, what is the other that is standing out the most. So if I am, you know, at my predominantly black church or, you know, and I won't say mine, but say I visiting a predominantly black church, um, then I'm typically thinking, okay, I'm feeling awkward. It's likely disability, right? Cause everybody else, you know, skin color looks like me. Um, if I go into a, you know, primarily disability focused space, then, you know, and I'm feeling a little awkward, then I'm like, is it because I'm black, right? Um, and, and then out in the world in general, um, I'm, I, and Carmen, I know we've talked about this um, before, and there kind of is, I think it, it depends on your experience, life experience, um, and 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 whether for me i generally because i've been a wheelchair user and have a significant disability that requires um, a pretty significant amount of support and i use a power wheelchair i'm generally thinking disability first if i was like kind of hierarchical um, in nature around if i'm being discriminated against that's probably the first thing i think of um and yet because you know, to Stefan's point, you're you're um, you're just you're a minority in all the ways. Is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm disabled? I don't know. And um, and so I and I find myself. I mean, I had a situation earlier today where I was assessing based on the other person and what they represent in terms of their demographic, what it could be, um, and and based on how I was being treated. And uh, I think that um, that's just a constant experience. It's like, which one is it? Um, you can't really point unless it's incredibly blatant. 
I totally wholeheartedly agree with Andrea. It really depends on the space. And because I'm in a lot of corporate spaces, I'm definitely the only disabled person with a visible disability. I'm definitely most likely um, the only person, one of a handful of people of color. I kind of do that scan first and then, okay, for all of our attendees. So there's something that we talk about called like the black glance where you kind of nod or you acknowledge the other person's there. So you know, okay, I've been in situations where I haven't gotten the black glance back and I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right. But um, you just kind of acknowledge each other and then, you know, you go on with the meeting. It doesn't mean anything like you're going to get a one up or anything like that, but it's just an acknowledgement that someone else is there and you're not the only one. So third question, as a black person, what has been your reaction to the social unrest related to George Floyd's murder? Now, let me say this. I mean, we have we black folks on the on the um, web and the session. We have been having discussions in, amongst our friends and community before. You know, I think for me the big stake in the ground took the wind out of me was Trayvon Martin, right? And you can remember like the incident where it totally wiped you out. You were gutted. Like, how could this be? So let me ask you this. So what's been your reaction? to everything we see in the culture and um, as, it as it relates to George Floyd's murder. Um, Andrea, you wanna go first? Um, I think, I mean, he said it. It's like, this is not new, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, and I, I can honestly say I've probably been more frustrated um, than, than anything because it's, uh, it's it's not new, you know who? And so um, the fact that, you know, we have a recorded incident is an, essentially what uh, it, it seems to have taken. Uh, not that there haven't been other recorded incidents um, because I won't even, you know, start giving all of the names, but um, <clears throat> in this particular case that is bringing attention in a different way. And so I'm glad that uh, it's happening. I think my, from the very first day that there seemed to be, you know, this attention all of a sudden, I think my biggest thing was, you know, let this, please let this not be, you know, a fad um, and let this not be, you know, something attention is given you know, in this moment and maybe for a few more months, um, but that it it does cause some actual shifts at the highest of levels and that we move beyond, quite frankly, what we're doing right here, which is having a conversation um, and actually that there's some legwork and, um, and, and I'm using that as a disabled person saying that, that there's some, you know, work that, that is gonna be done where people can actually a year from now we look back and actually see the difference that it made. Right, great. All right, Stefan, what about you? Been a little bit angrier than normal. <laughs> to be honest, there's something about seeing these videos over and over again now, you know? And then it taking like a global pandemic and the economy shutting down and people literally spending the last like three minutes of their life crying for their mom 
for everyone to hey, be like, hey, racism is real. Police brutality is real. And, you know, I'm happy that everyone's coming to the forefront. I'm happy that a lot of people are joining the cause. I really just hope that people were cut, came along to it sooner. Yeah. It, yeah, I agree. And it, it and, and <laughs> I said to some of my white friends who were comfortable talking to me, did you think we were making this up? <laughs> this is not fabricated. This is, you know, in our community, this is what we know. And we have to have really different conversations with our children, with our sons. Um, yeah. Just, and, and it's, it's painful because I hear mothers, I have a daughter and I'm not as worried, but I'm still cautious. But mm -hmm. I hear mothers, my friends who are mothers of boys, black boys, and they say, I hold my breath and I pray until I hear the door open. And so um, this is just normal part of the culture and it's not hyperbolic. I mean, if, if, if Tamir Rice, I mean, all of us can name 10 names. But if a 12-year-old boy playing with a gun, now I'm getting on a soapbox, <laughs> at a park, got mistaken as adult and shot and killed, that's, there's something wrong not with that boy. He's being a kid. It's yeah. something wrong with the police and, and their reaction. And so, um, yeah. I, I'll get off that. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, too. trust me. I would just I would just say what the world the world reaction that everyone saw was the collective trauma of black people the anger the pain the microaggressions all encapsulated in what you saw in the looting and in the marches etc so okay um all right let's shift gears a little bit cuz um, I know we're to touch on Black Lives Matter. So tell me your feelings or perspectives on Black Lives Matter. On, as a group, as a, as a movement, tell me what you, you, your thoughts are. We'll start with you, Stefan. All right, cool. Um, as a movement, I feel like it's necessary. I think it's amazing in the sense of like, thank you everybody for getting yourself, getting like just involved energy wise and trying to do something to help stop this problem of police brutality. Um, I think as a group, it can be a little bit better organized in terms of like having a message that's very succinct and clear about what specifically you're supporting. Um, I get what they were trying to do with having like not one leader because of like the idea that like Martin Luther King, when he died, the civil rights movement fell apart or whatever. But simultaneously, the movement was falling apart already for different reasons. It wasn't really just Martin Luther King's death. Um, and I feel like every everything needs a leader, right? Like, I feel like the movement in general is amazing, but we have a lead and we have a lead with clear goals like we need to have de police defunded or to like have like them regularly checked psychologically every month to have firearms checks every month something right like four or five things that we're really going to ask for from this and push on from every leader in our system that would, that would be great do you know what i mean 
Yes, I gotcha. Okay. All right, Mr. Ainsworth, can you share your perspectives or feelings on BLM? Sure. Um, I agree uh, that we are in a, a historical moment. And uh, I'm glad that there is a banner um, to unite. I mean, these protests have been worldwide. Uh, and, and it's astounding because there's oppression by color all, all across the planet. Uh, here in Colorado, we passed uh, a major police reform bill. Um, it's been several weeks now. Uh, and in Colorado, we've removed uh, police indemnity for um, uh, actions taken while uh, in, in uniform, while at work, et cetera. Um, there have been uh, also, there's uh, mandatory body cam and other kinds of reforms. So the pressure is, is palpable and yeah. um, it's important for the activists to uh, be practical and pragmatic as well as to be on the streets. And uh, I think we're in a moment where we can create a lot of change. Yeah. And it, it, but it's, you know, it, we don't have a national police organization, you know, like in South Africa, they have one national police service. Uh, and so it has to happen at state levels. It has to happen even on, you know, there's the county level and then there's the municipal, the city's police districts. So I think it's up to all of us to carry through with this, with this banner. Um, you know, some people detract from the name Black Lives Matter, but it's, it's a unifying banner. And uh, we're in a historical moment. And I think we've seen more uh, change around these issues, institutional change, like with the, um, the uh, NASCAR and um, uh, Marine Corps banning uh, Confederate flags and things like this. Uh, we've seen more change here yeah. in two or three months than we have in 30 years. So, it, you know, it's, it's just heartbreaking that we had to see a guy get choked to death in front of our, uh, in front of our eyes uh, for people to wake up and say enough. Right. Um, for white people uh, to join in uh, as, you know, as well with us and to really demand change. So, so that's how I see it. I'd give you a fist bump on that. Okay, Andre. <laughs> I have nothing more to add to that. That was great. Okay, well then let me pivot. How do you feel when you hear people say all lives matter? I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, I think that um, I've heard and I'll be honest and say, I hear people say disabled lives matter. And, um, and I think that usurping, aiming is yet another, you know, um, attempt to detract from what's actually happening. And to say, to, to specifically point to the fact that you know, what is happening in our world. And, and I've heard so many different analogies, you know, of people, you know, trying to, to really make it plain what Black Lives Matter means, you know, if my house is burning down and your house is in the whole street, but this is the one that's burning down, who are you going to give attention to? The one that's burning down and it's Black Lives Matter, you know, all different types of analogies. But at the end of the day, 
A, it was a movement created by us for us, you know, and, um, and other people, allies to join. But ultimately, um, those other experiences aren't the same. And I have to quote uh, a colleague and friend, Ola Ojawumi. We were on a panel a couple of weeks ago and she said, and I just, I haven't heard it said any better. She said, you know, the fact is that as a white person, you can still roll into, even if you're a wheelchair user, you can still roll into a clans meeting. <laughs> and we, then, then you should see the difference um, between Black Lives Matter and everything else. So it's not the same. It shouldn't be placed, you know, all lives matter. It, me as a black, you know, woman and, a, and, and black disabled woman, my experience when I roll into a room is not the same as a white disabled peer. It's just not going to be. I'm not going to be treated the same way. Um, and so we have to acknowledge that. Okay. I had a person say to me, a white woman who also has a disability after you know, a lot of the marches, she said, I really wish disability got the same level of attention as Black Lives Matter. And I was like, oh, and I said, well, I think it would take seeing repeatedly disabled people killed and it being videotaped for people to take notice. And you don't, we don't want that. So, you know, that kind of pulled her back and she realized what she said but i couldn't just let that go <laughs> yeah, white, white disabled people because we're saying this a black disabled people be killed That's, yeah right this is true this is true yeah. this is true all right before i get to the last uh, couple of questions um you know there's a lot of talk about privilege right and what does that mean and how do you explain that to your friends who are white um, real quickly, what, how do you all define privilege? If, you, if you're talking to one of your friends who's come to you and they want to understand um, what it means, a, a white friend, um, how do you describe it, Mr. Ainsworth? Well, gosh. Um, <laughs> Loaded question. I have never been one that really liked that word. Okay. <laughs> I've never really liked that word. Uh, and I, I yeah, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I, ha I don't uh, get into many one-on-one uh, -on -one kinds of conversations where I'm trying to explain, uh, you know, blackness and the difference between white privilege and, and so on. Um, I'm just trying to be in the moment, I guess, with the bigger picture, you know, to be at the protest and to try to get people to focus on practical policy changes you know, uh, I was an activist. Uh, this is very interesting. You know, when, when I was in high school, we had an educational program um, that was an experiential education program. And uh, one of the modules had to do with disability awareness and activism. This is in the 70s. And this was before I had my injury. I got my injury in 2002. Um, and so we, I experienced, uh, well, we, we, we had to go and be in wheelchairs and we had to uh, simulate blindness 
and a lot of different kinds of things to be aware. And I became an activist of, around disability issues in college. And I would say that the, um, the ADA, it's a similar kind of a thing. Uh, we need the broad systemic change. And I guess we're at a moment now where uh, the issue is finally being forced and it's reckoned and people are in the streets and, and hopefully with the election and with the continued activism, um, we'll get some kind of shift in society. Maybe we could have some kind of uh, 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 reparation or truth and reconciliation commission or something to spark a national dialogue. Um, but uh, gosh, I don't use the word privilege very much in my discussions with people. Okay. All right, Andrea. I, I use the word. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I, I, um, I had a presentation that talked about this, and it's basically the way we describe it is privilege is, is not having to notice. So right. it's, you know, when <laughs> you never thought about the fact until you get up to a door and you see a wheelchair user that there's no button here. You know, we see people do that. Oh my God, there's not a ramp. Oh my gosh, there's not a button here, you know? Um, and so the same for, you know, when it comes to, to, you know, white privilege, it's the same types of things. Well, you know, I never thought about the fact that I could, you know, there was the story going around, you know, oh, the guy, what was it? Like had taken something from the store or whatever, and it was no big deal or some money or whatever, like just, things like that, that, that we could, um, you know, that, that black, you know, males especially have to worry about that white, you know, males have never thought anything about, like not having to pay attention or not having to notice. That's what privilege is. Okay. All right. We got two more questions uh, that I have, and then we have a bunch of questions that have come in. So I'm going to land the plane soon. Okay. So what makes a good ally? Stefan, what do, what do you think? Um, someone who listens instead of talks. Um, someone who takes the time to actually do the research on their own, try to figure out what people are talking about when you're talking about systemic racism, when you're talking about history of racism, um, and try to understand their other people's views and teach us on top of that. Tell your family, correct that drunk uncle who's talking craziness of every barbecue. You know what I mean? Like, go to the rallies, do your best to help out. I think that's a good ally. Yep. Andrea, you have anything to add? Yeah, um, I, I mean, well, I would say Steph, what Stefan said, it's, it's being quiet. I think it's not, um, it's, uh, it's, it's passing the mic um, and not just from an external perspective, but internally. So it's creating opportunities, offering opportunities, not for free, like paying people, you know, just, I mean, things like that, creating this basically where your privilege lies, it's passing that along to others. Yeah. Mr. Ainsworth? Gosh, I really have much more to add. Okay. Those were good comments. So great comments. The only thing I'll add quickly is the best, I've heard this and I liked it. Um, an ally is the person who's vocal when the group or the person being is being discussed in a room and they're not there and they're standing up for them. So that is a good ally. So if you look around your conference room table and you don't see a specific group of people that you're like, you know what, we should do better in that area. Be the person to speak up and say something. 
All right, last question, and then we'll go to the questions. How can we help the disability community become more inclusive of people of color? So there are a lot of people with disabilities who, or chronic health conditions who are people of color, but I would say the disability leadership is not very diverse. How can we help advise the community to become more inclusive? Literally go out of your way to do it, right? Like, you know, if you have a position that feels like it would talk to a lot of people, interview a lot of people of color and see if they can fit the role, you know what I mean? And just have them on your team, <laughs> like, or at least have like a group of advisors that like whenever you do some sort of advertising or some sort of event that you just kind of run through like some people of color who are wise before you go and put things out there. Right. Okay. Andrea, do you have any thoughts? Thank you, Stefan. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, and I'm getting asked this quite a bit. And it's hard, it's, it's hard right now because you have to be able to demonstrate authenticity yeah. in a way that is, um, it's tricky because I think we all like know what's up is what we would say. So like if, if we get a call right now in this current climate, like it's like, I know why you're, you know, and so I think number one, right now you have to be comfortable with whatever the response is. Um, you have to be willing to listen and you have to be okay with us saying, no, we're not interested or, you know, um, just whatever it may be because we're all processing in, in um, different ways. And I think it's creating jobs. You know, I think it's creating, um, like I said, the opportunity beyond just goodness knows, I think we receive so much. Well, it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for exposure, you know, that kind of thing. And we don't need um, exposure, quite honestly. Like we need the platforms and we need to be not just at the table and Anita Cameron talks about this. It's not just about being at the table, but it really is about, um, uh, you know, being able to really be in positions of leadership um, and stepping aside. And we've seen that in non-disabled spaces, right, of key leaders that are literally saying, you know what, I'm back and back um, to ensure that this, you know, there's a position, um, this position can be you know, fulfilled by a person of color. And I think that the disability community should create spaces like that. I would agree with you. And I think there has to be enough recognition that the table's big enough for everyone to pull under it. And that if you give someone else an opportunity, it doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna lose out. That's a, that's a, a fallacy that a lot of people have in the diverse, when you have conversations about diversity that, oh, well, I'm giving up something. I'm not doing that. I'm going to hold on tight because I don't want someone else to get it. So I'm going to move on to the question since we have a number and I want to be respectful of the time. So we had a couple of comments and Bill Furtick, who um, works for United Spinal, he asked, do the panelists feel that they remain open to continuing work with law enforcement to improve relations with communities of color? Or rather, are the panelists too frustrated to continue past levels of collaboration or not? Stefan, how do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we have a choice. So like, you know, like I don't, 
I don't think they're going away anytime soon. Um, black people are going to keep living. I want more people to keep living. So we have to try and work with these with the police officers, no matter what. Next question by Jen French. So many of us now have a higher sensitization of racism that is systemic and longstanding. Equality and behaviors need to change. What are your suggestions that the average person can do to change? So I think that's the, there's a word in there that is what makes the difference and that's equality versus equity, right? And so equality meaning like, okay, we all get the same exact thing. And the fact is that we all don't need the exact same thing, right? And I think, you know what I mean? And so um, I, I think it's, it is, is, is being aware, you know, each person it's, it's, there is no, and I say this, I say it when I do my disability inclusion work and I say it here, um, there's no cookie cutter answer to this, to, you know what I'm saying, to, the, to what has come to the surface. And I think that it's asking a lot of questions. It's recognizing that just because you know one black person or you know one black disabled person, that our experiences, because we do come with different levels of you know, history, Carmen, I mean, we've all just said it here, right? Like I had my, I've had my disability my entire life. And so what my experience and what I bring into a space is gonna look different than, you know, perhaps Carmen's experience or stuff. So I think that it's really, right now it's just important to listen. Um, that's what I would say, you know, my advice would be and, and not um, coming in with any preconceived notions other than what we know. And that is, there is, blatant racism like and blatant ableism in this country today um and we yeah and 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 creating a level playing field um and when we think about the disability rights movement so grateful and mr ainsworth talked about it like the ada and what it did is it it, it helped us you know with the equality piece but when it comes to this next level of like of, of thinking about things from an intersectional perspective, we have to really um, embrace the idea that we're not all the same. And so yep. we need to, to listen. Okay. All right, we have a question from Tim Gilmer, who, which is, I'm interested in anyone's experiences as a person with a disability at an HBCU. Also, is there a consensus among panelists on, on other black attendees or other black attendees about which are the best HBCUs for accessibility and wheelchair culture. That's Carmen. <laughs> Stefan, did you go to an HBCU? I did not. So I'm sorry, we should right. go. So for those who are um, uh, attending, uh, HBCU is a historically black college that um, there are 107 HBCUs throughout the country. Now they're, you know, they're predominantly African-American, um, sometimes started by abolitionists um, back in the 1800s, but it provided an opportunity for free slaves to get an education um, when, they were when they were free um, after being enslaved. And so I went to Hampton University, woo -woo, which is in um, Hampton, Virginia and near Virginia Beach. Um, I went to Hampton uh, without a disability and acquired my, dis had my a car accident my junior year. Um, you know, Tim, I don't know that there's, 
I, I, I think that the beauty of an HBCU is that it was, I mean, I've heard this of a lot of people, it is the only, only place, especially in your young development, where you can relax and you don't have to worry about, um, you're, you're in a very supportive culture where your teachers, your professors, your friends are all cheering for you. There may be some issues of socioeconomic status or, you know, um, things like that, but race is not one of them. And so that I found for Hampton, it was like the heavens parted because I was the only black person in my high school graduating class and I needed to be in the majority for once in my life. So Hampton was a breath of fresh air. That said, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that there is a directory or um, some sort of document that really um, encapsulates what's best for wheelchair culture. I think that's one of those things that needs to be developed. Um, and I think that for a lot of HBCUs, and I, I'll share this with you, Tim, when we talk a little further, um, that there's so many HBCUs don't receive the same level of funding as predominantly white institutions. It's just a fact. And so while they are required to meet certain standards, um, a lot of resources are going towards scholarships and paying faculty and you know, making the buildings maybe minimally accessible. Um, in my case, Hampton went over and beyond for me um, and I got injured before the ADA became law. So anyway, we can talk about that further. Um, let me go through this last couple of questions. Um, can I just say something real quick to that? Um, I was just going to say that my parents went to HBCUs. And honestly, the reason why I did not was because, um, and specifically the one they went to, is because it wasn't like physically accessible. So I, I mean, and that was almost 20 years ago. So, you know, hopefully things have changed, but I definitely think that, um, yeah, there's work to be done. And like you said, though, it's around resources, so. Yep, absolutely. Okay, Steve Lieberman said, according to the National Spinal Cord Injury Statistical Center, since 2015, nearly 24% of newly spinal cord injured Americans have been black. That compares to 13% of the general population who are black. Um, how can institutional SCI focused and disability organizations ensure that we are properly centering and recruiting black advocates in our work? I think we touched on this some. Um, you gotta be proactive. I mean, it's like any, any you and you have to be able to meet people where they are. I didn't enter the disability leadership um, with an independent living mindset as an advocate. I was just trying to get through doorways and in bathrooms and things and learning to drive. So you know there may be a learning curve for folks, and we have to be comfortable as a community and not jam stuff down their throat that you know they have this this learning curve. And you know, some people may grasp it quicker, more quickly than others, but I would say um, just being proactive. Is there anything else that y'all would add to that? Okay. And then lastly, Brooke McCall, great conversation. I think a lot of discussion has been had around how to be strong allies to people of color. And I'd love to have you answer that question from your perspectives as a black disabled leaders. Additionally, what would be your advice for newly disabled black peers dealing with newfound intersectional identities? Good question. 
who feel overwhelmed and want to develop their voice and be heard. Stefan, do you have any thoughts? That's, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a great one. Um, I've always found like, well, just for disability in general, like if you find like an independent living center, there tends to be one in every state from what I remember. Yep. Um, go there, see what groups are around. I would go to the ones that are more centered around the urban neighborhoods. <laughs> um if you have that option whatever that neighborhood looks like for you um one great one for us was axis in um harlem and tons of black and brown people and white people too and you know there's a home for everybody just go to your independent living center and try to find it yeah andrea you have anything um yeah i well what i would say one thing that it's it fits in this is just that also be okay with where you're at kind of on the way to where you're going. And I know that the disability can, community sometimes can be a bit critical around yeah. people's um, perceptions of disability, specifically um, when it comes to these the intersectional experiences. And I think it's important for us as disabled people, as those that work in you know, disability-focused organizations, to understand that like these concepts, I have disability pride. Some people may not be, you know, especially, at, you know, depending on where they're at, like the concept of embracing disability and all of these different things, there's, there's a process. And I think, um, so my advice to those of us on the other end is being, you know, open to uh, where people are at in their disability kind of identity journey um, and not forcing uh, some of these, I, I think, um, the, the principles and the things that we we tend to push around, you know, I love my this, you know, some may, people may not be there. And I remember when I started out in the movement, I got so excited learning about disability history and Judy Human and all of this. And my boss brought me in and he was like, just know that not everybody's going to feel that way. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to let that be the last word since we're over eight o'clock and I want to be respectful. Thank you all so much for um, joining us. We hope you've learned something. Um, this will be the first in a series of conversations. Thank you, Mr. Ainsworth, Andrea, and Stefan. Um, you can look for United Spinal to have more of these conversations. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, when we know better, we do better. And so this is just an opportunity for us to all grow and learn uh, to be better and more supportive to each other. Um, and I will turn this back over to Abby to formally uh, close us out. Abby. Thank you all so much. We really appreciate your conversation tonight and your candor and your wisdom. So thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll keep you posted on further conversations. Have a great night, everyone. <laughs>